Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. So today we're going to talk about, um, well, domain-specific languages, but in particular you wanted to talk about... Declarative languages. Declarative languages. And can you... Like, we should make sure everyone's on the same page, including me, because if you asked me what the definition of a declarative language was, I couldn't say for sure. So what would you... I think the most cited example of a declarative language is SQL. And uh, it's a language where you don't have, like, programming logic. You, you can only... Um, you can only create statements, not... Is that right? Uh, well, that makes me think Only of things. that makes me think of there was a language. If uh, you were probably too young, but if you remember, in the '90s we had this thing called the the AI revolution, <laughs> which nobody remembers because it didn't go anyplace. But but one of the languages was I can't remember the name of it, but it was a there were some four GL languages back in, around that same there was timeline. that, but this was like a this was like a full on programming language, okay. but it was declarative. Okay, and um, and it was very strange to try and understand and program. And and, and my friend um, uh, Gary Ensminger was super into this language. Yeah, and he could use it apparently, but he couldn't. Well, he couldn't explain it to me in the way that I could start using it. So, so I think one of the common traits of a declarative language is that it is parsed, and then that directs um, something else to apply the actual logic, like what actually happens. Mm -hmm. And this allows you to, like in the case of SQL, it's really easy just to like take a text string and then and then parse it, something then parses it and turns it into the actual logic that then gets applied. Um, so it's it's easy to pass around, it's easy to copy and paste, uh, it's, um, you don't have to have a project, you know, it just is a text file, just as a block of text. And so, so there's this draw towards, I think, declarative languages for query languages for, um, I think regex in some ways might be considered a declarative language. Um, there's configuration is a big one where we've seen, by the way, that was short for regular expressions. Thank you. She missed it. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so configuration is a big one. So we use for Kubernetes, we use YAML as the declarative language to tell Kubernetes what to do, uh, for, um, the XML was really one of the first places where where declarative languages started gaining a lot of, of popularity. And then, of course, we took those declarative languages and started bolting on programming logic into them. So uh, some listeners may remember uh, there was uh, Ant was a XML based um, build configuration language. The, with thinking in Java, I built a tool to automatically generate ant files because I didn't want to do it myself yep. every time I added a new example. Yep. Yeah. So, so apparently I understood to, ant. At easy one point. to build tools around, I think, is, uh -huh. is you know, it, it, let's say that instead you had a general purpose language that you were 
that you were defining those builds in, it would actually would have probably been a bit harder to to program the tooling that you did if it if you had 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 to do it because then it would have to compile and there would be all the language constraints that you'd have to deal with. And I keep thinking though that because well, like I started with Make and you could see how Make kept adding things until it became something where they go, oh, you know, if we keep going, we're going to have a general purpose language. So I kept thinking, why not start with the general purpose language and then add things like, oh, we'll easily uh, see if something's out of date. You know, add a few things on top of a general purpose language. And if it was yeah. something like Python, you wouldn't have the compilation stuff yeah. and everything. So that's where my mind kept going. Well, so what happened in the case of Ant was, uh, Actually, no. Um, I think it was actually initially an ant that that they they started adding programming logic into the ant language. They did because what happens every single time with these declarative languages is that at some point you hit the boundary of what the language was intended for you to do, and you need more power, and you need if statements, and you need loops, and you need whatever. And so there's always this like slippery slope where the declarative languages creep towards though, a general purpose language. is it just like, well, I mean, like when I was trying to learn Elm, there was always that spot where, okay, this, you know, the state changed. And they, they kept it in a box hidden away as as much as possible in a monadic box in even. a monad <laughs> which i didn't understand at the time but but i mean it's like is it just that we have been trained to think in a particular way and these concepts that we'd have to wrap our heads around would require us to think too differently yeah 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 i they're they're, the point of a declarative language, I think, is to constrain what you can do intentionally. But there's always going to be someone who wants to go further than that constraint. They learn for it. whatever it's reason. It's a useful tool. Now they want to do this other thing built on top of their existing learning. It makes sense, yeah. you know. And so I, um, I've built a declarative language for mm -hmm. a workflow system, and experienced this exactly this whole like creep firsthand mm -hmm. so i i kept evolving this language because of the needs that my workflow system had and so i ha kept having to creep the language further and i realized that at the point i was implementing my own like boolean comparison logic in my own language that that I had it's made the same mistake that everyone else has with <laughs> declarative just languages. Went off the cliff. Yeah. Exactly. And and I so I want to come back to your point of shouldn't we instead be starting with general purpose languages and creating DSLs from those so that when you need the escape hatch, it's there for you versus so I think that's one that's one compelling reason to start with a general purpose language and go the other way. Another one is tooling. So what's fascinating, and I, I had a tweet around this uh, a couple weeks ago, where I said, superior tooling is often cited as a primary reason for declarative languages. I'm sure you've heard this before, like, we'll be able to build such great tools around this declarative language. And so my tweet continues. And yet, somehow, I've never experienced superior tooling for a declarative language. Most often, the tooling is abysmal. 
So I don't know if you've experienced this firsthand, but so many times, like people are the the declarative language is sold. Like, oh, we're going to be able to have such great tooling around this thing, but the tooling never comes. Yeah, it reminds me of when UML was there was going to be UML to code, and I remember a guy at a conference saying, "Yeah, and we're you know right now we're like ninety five percent there." Yep. Never, never heard anything. Yeah, never finished that five percent. Yeah, that five percent apparently was really a killer. Yeah, I, I had a tweet around exactly that recently, where it was like, "Oh, remember when we did UML? Yeah. Oh, remember when we tried to automatically create programs from UML? Uh -huh. Like, apparently, there's still some people using UML, which no knocks against UML. I think there's some interesting value to it for some things, but, but not but the for idea everything. that we would take that very constrained way to represent a program and try to automatically turn it into a program just it's, apparently failed. it's not a Turing complete language yeah. yeah and so so I think there's the tooling side of it where it's like the general per a lot of the general purpose languages at least the popular ones have great tooling so why would you not want to to take advantage of that? leverage that yeah well so what I think you're talking about is because there's this categories of DSLs. What you're talking about is an internal DSL, which is something that fits within the language. You still have the rest of the language around it, but here's this part that you've created, and, and Kotlin is set up to do this nicely. So you can say, I'm doing this, and then you can just declare these things inside of it, and somebody who's not at least not a professional programmer can look at that and go, oh, well, if you give me a list of things, I can put them in. I've got some examples in uh, Atomic Kotlin of, yeah. of, you know, like building sandwiches yep. using uh, like a little internal DSL. Yep. And it's like, then you have all the tooling. Automatically, yeah. you don't have to invent it or anything. That's right. I think what you're maybe complaining about is the idea of an external DSL where you're inventing a whole language that is not supported by already by yep. tools. Yeah, not supported by tools, doesn't have the capabilities that you can reach for when you need them in the general purpose language. Mm -hmm. So I experience this all the time with declarative query languages mm -hmm. there there are so many times where i'm like oh if i just had flat map or if i just had like some collections operation then it well, would well you're a functional language bigot so i know <laughs> it's so hard living and living as a functional bigot and trying is, to use people's it? declarative languages once you start learning these things you want them so yeah maybe we should just not teach that stuff so that people don't <laughs> feel the lack yeah yeah, so uh, Brian Getz had a, a great tweet in response to a great tweet by Paul Chisano. Uh, Paul said, bold idea. When you want to get computers to do something, use a programming language, <laughs> not a YAML file. And I'm just like, God, so right. Okay, but then Brian Getz responded with usual Brian Getz brilliance. He said, Every declarative language eventually becomes a terrible programming language, just without the aid of actual language design. We learned this with XML 20 years ago. It astounds me that people seem to think the lesson of that age was that we used the wrong shape brackets. Oh, angle brackets. So oh. at least in XML, there was, there, there was an idea of 
uh, schema for your declarative language, mm-hmm. you, you a lot of people chose not to use that with just literal XML or whatever it was called. But there was a lot of places where you had, had an actual schema for the declarative language. And that was a whole lot better than where we're at today with YAML files where there is no schema to validate against. And then that makes the tooling harder to, to you don't have the tooling like autocomplete that you did in XML and so we've oh but man was that ugly and difficult to read when i first like said hey i i have some uncertainties about this xml thing like whether it's really the right way to go man i got so piled on and of course it's pointless but now much later it's like everybody goes yeah yeah that didn't work out yeah yeah it's tough to be the first one to go hey the emperor it may be scantily clad right well, then a lot of uh, that kind of configuration, DSL, declarative DSL stuff moved to JSON. But then because JSON didn't have code comments, so JSON was easier on the eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And it had one of the, the big differences that JSON defines uh, integer types, um, array types, object types. What other literals are there? In a couple, well, string, string types. Uh, yeah, I think that's just an object. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the way. Yeah. yeah, it is. But but I think that was that was a, a a better foundation than XML that had nothing other than properties and and nodes, right? I think that's kind of all you get at the primitives of XML. Mm-hmm. Um, but now because of the lack of comments supported in in json yaml became the the replacement for that Hmm. and now toml is the new one that's that is simpler than yaml not as not as nested not uh doesn't use um white space uh significant white space and so but i think it also has some additional capabilities right toml does or I thought Tommel did, or there was something. Know. It solved a problem yeah. because yeah. otherwise people would have continued to. Oh, and, and does it have comments? Oh, I guess yeah. they both have yeah, comments. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's funny. Why couldn't they have comments in JSON? I think it's that it made most parsers puke. Uh. It wasn't in the formal specification. It wasn't in the stand. That mm. wasn't in the standard implementations, and so because I mean, still it gets massive use. Like oh yeah, like kind of everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, npm uses it still for its its. Um, but just not necessarily as a readable thing, which YAML and Toml are supposed to be. Uh, I I don't find JSON particularly. No, that it's not not compared to XML, but it's not like, you know, if you want comments, for example, you're doing that for readability and right. not just yeah, yeah. Uh, serializing and deserializing. Right. Which yeah, seems yeah like Jason it. seems like it's more oriented around making life easier for the parsers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm really wondering, like, is all of this just wrong? Like, is, is, is it just fundamentally flawed to, to be building any declarative language not on top of a general purpose language? Is, I'm a language guy, so you're not going to get that much <laughs> argument from me. I, and yes, there are some challenges to this. So it, given the example of like a query language, it is nice to not have to have any project or environment or anything to be able to just plop some text in and, and have a query engine 
use it. But can't you do that and still allow for things to get bigger and more complicated later? I mean, so you, know, you that's but then the you need to Python bring in works. a compiler. When you actually run that code, you you probably need to do some sandboxing around around the actual execution of it. So let's say that you're let's say that it is query uh, query language is our example here. If you're going to allow someone to use, let's say, Kotlin to define their queries instead of some text thing, then you're no longer running an interpreter that you control to execute that that thing, which is where you can apply security, you can apply constraints around, uh, you don't have to worry about what happens if this thing uses all my memory, you don't have to worry about what if it starts accessing my file system, like there, there's all sorts of, of constraints that you can very easily apply when you're parsing and interpreting a, a declarative language. But isn't this what Gradle does with, um, I mean, they use Kotlin as as a... In the case of Gradle, they don't have to worry about those types of constraints as much because they Gradle just inherently trusts that the person that's running the code is okay with it being able to do whatever it wants. Mm. Whereas, if uh, so, let, let's say that you you're uh, you have a um, business intelligence dashboard with a, a bunch of of data behind it, and you want to allow people to create queries against that data. A declarative language seems like a great direction to go because it's so easy to control what what they can actually do. Because sure. you control the parser, you control the interpreter, you control the execution environment. And you control the commands that they can put inside of their... The constraints on what <clears throat> what are what's allowed, what that user is allowed to do mm -hmm. is much easier to implement. So if you were to use a general purpose language, let's just say Kotlin, instead, all of a sudden you're running a compiler, you are having to, to put all sorts of, of um, constraints in place that are very hard to put in place for what that can do. Like you have to control the amount of memory it can use. You have to control the amount of CPU, CPU time that it can use. You have to control access to uh, the network because now all of a sudden like you could use Kotlin to like make a network request. You have to control uh, the file system access. You have to, so there's so many new areas that all sounds very messy and and unpleasant and i just want to get this job done so i'm going to ignore those things yeah and so so i think that that that's why we have just reached towards inventing our own declarative languages is because providing the constraints on the general purpose languages has been very hard and so what i wonder is is there a way that we could make applying those constraints easier so that so that it so that we wouldn't necessarily have to reach for that invented declarative language. Instead, we could reach for the general purpose language. So like a library or a framework? To... I think I think it has to be something around the actual runtime, like maybe maybe Docker as part of the solution. Of, oh. But then it's like, when I, when I am working on a query and running the query, my response time to validating the query syntax and then running the query is easily a second. Whereas if all of a sudden we're involving a compiler, creating a Docker container, running a Docker container, all of a sudden that becomes like 30 seconds, you know? And so, so there's, it, it becomes, a, it, there are some challenging problems there, but I wonder if we could actually 
start addressing these problems if they are addressable so that we don't have to reach for those invented declarative languages we can just start with the general purpose languages and create dsls oh another thing that i hate about declarative languages is that there is no there's i think almost never a reusability model besides copy and paste so think of sql wouldn't it be nice if you could like share share parts of sql queries with people and import those like have a dependency manager for your sql so that you could have a actual reusability model but no of course like sql doesn't have that hmm. that's so, a really good point uh luciano romalo and i were talking yesterday and we got onto the subject of uh concurrency and the difficulty slash impossibility of of verifying whether if you're using locks and threads you know whether your code is at least does it fail and he said that there was a tool out there that would like if you stayed within these constraints when you were writing your your code it could check it but then he said and to do a full check would take like a week <laughs> so you think about think about where, this is where we, we need gone. quantum computing yeah, so well, that can yeah if you validate can all possible uh states uh, yeah. yeah all possible ways In, uh, to... yeah yeah so yeah that seems like the wrong way to go yeah. um well i wonder though if this isn't an issue because we haven't hit like a critical mass of people using dsls creating creating and using dsls and that's why we don't have more of these kinds of things or I mean, when you're creating a DSL, it seems like you're kind of hyper-focused on solving a particular problem. Yeah. And yeah, there are these other issues, but we're trying to create a product for the end, you know, and we're trying to make it easy for the end. You yeah. know, your whole mindset, I think, is away from the big problem. And what maybe needs to be done is kick a bunch of money into an open source project to to try and solve that problem. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is that that other problem that you and I have discussed before. How do we fund yeah. new open source projects, not maintenance of existing ones? Yeah, yeah. So this this is a, yet another thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, maybe part of it is that for me, I had to build my own declarative language to realize why it was a bad idea to build my own declarative language. And maybe we just need enough people to have that experience that then the mindset will shift to how instead can I start with a general purpose language and achieve what I need? I don't know if that's because going back to concurrency, I've I've given any number of presentations where I try and make the case that it's basically impossible to. And, and I think it's a scaling issue, too. You know, if your problem is small enough, it's the same with uh, it's the same with exceptions. It's like in the small exceptions look like a great idea, but when it starts getting bigger, it's the same with locks and threads. Like, oh, you're building a little part of an operating system. You can see everything. You can hold it in your head. But once it gets larger than that, yeah. it becomes intractable. And when I present that, I inevitably there's one or two people who say, well, you can't do that, but I can. And it's like, I think you will run into the same problem. I think you, yeah. and it's like, how do you do it? 
In, in fact, it was Brian Getz again who he gave a he gave a presentation. You might have even seen it because it was at the um, conference that Diane Marsh oh, used to the yeah, Codemash. Code Codemash. Yeah. He gave a presentation at Codemash, and at the time, you know, putting everything on the net wasn't the common thing to do. Yeah, and he wanted to. He didn't want it recorded because he was figuring he would give it. And I was like, I'm watching this. I'm going. You have basically proved that you know what my assertion, and and unfortunately, like I saw it and I grasped it at the moment, but yeah. it's really hard to 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 redo it. And and it, but anyway, it's that kind of presentation that we need to convince people that oh yeah, can't it shouldn't do it. Yeah, rather than having to. It just seems so easy it. at first. It's like oh, like. I'll just do this. I'll just do this. I'll just do this little thing, and it's so easy. And and so I think it's it, it's easy to have the blinders and and only see like oh I just need to solve this one little problem, and then you're forgetting about tooling, you're forgetting about code reuse, you're forgetting about like all these other things that eventually you should really do. It's a variation of the technical debt problem. It's always like oh. Just do this one little thing. Don't worry about the impact that it has on the rest of your system or the long-term effect. And the problem is that there are problems where that's probably the right approach to take. You know, you just want to solve this one problem. And if you continue using the code, you'd better start thinking about your technical debt. But initially, it's like, no, I just want to do this one thing. Yeah. That's no, we shouldn't necessarily throw out that kind of thinking because it, 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 you know, when that scales up, it starts to produce bad code. You know, if it's a if it's a small problem and it remains a small problem, and it's like, well, but do the problems ever really remain small? I think that, I think every declarative language that I've seen, it the problem just the the needs on the language only ever grow. <laughs> If it's being used, usually somebody will come along and, I mean, these little tools that I keep making for build systems usually with um, Python, I'm, I'm using this wonderful thing that Armin Roniker created called Click. And I've been looking for how do I do easy command line stuff forever. And uh -huh. finally he came along with it and I'm going, ah, that's it. Anyway, that's the whole point of that is like, oh, you need a new tool it's almost a declarative language it's yeah. declaring it on the command line i suppose you need a new thing well you add that to your list of command line things and it, it yes exactly it only typically grows yeah 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 because yeah, somebody will come along and be like oh but i really need it to do this yeah it's doing all these things already well it's that code reuse problem again yeah uh, i wish i could just take what you have and add this other little thing on top of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, when I wrote that workflow, it was a declarative language in JSON and it was really made. I was the only user of this declarative language and it, it was such a slippery slope that I'm like, Oh, I just needed to do this. Oh, I just needed to do this. Mm -hmm. And it just kept growing. And I was the only one that could actually write, this declarative language because I'd written the parser for it and understood it. And so there were times where when I was working with people, it's like, Oh yeah, you just define this JSON workflow. It's, it's easy. 
And of course, no one ever did because they don't want to learn my declarative language. Yeah, that sounds like a dead end to me. It's like, oh yeah, I'll learn your declarative language and that'll 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 progress my career. Probably not. Probably well, do you? Not. So you have users for this? Yeah, it's a oh. system that I built at Salesforce for oh. managing their open source approval process. I see. Why I decided to build my own workflow engine and my own workflow declarative language. Because it would be easy and fun. Yeah, be easy and fun. And there is a point where I think everyone decides it's a good idea. Every programmer decides it's a good idea to build their own workflow system. It's like every programmer will get there at some point in their life. And, mm. and some of them... Uh, like me at Salesforce, were actually paid to money to do this, even though it was a bad idea. And um, so maybe th maybe everyone will at some point decide that they need to do it, and then some will actually do it because you know they get paid to or whatever it is. Well, but. think about that next time you you criticize managers for trying to measure everything. <laughs> yeah, the, the another pointless exercise, but. But you, you hear you. That's right. You did, yeah. We, no, we, no one said no. You should not build your own workflow system. <laughs> uh, actually, this workflow system, I am uh, filing a patent on it. Really? And yep. And um, because I actually did some interesting novel. See, that's that's really why I did it is because I'm like, oh, I can solve this problem better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And I did some novel things with it. So I, um, I'm filing a patent for it, and the the patent is now. Um, with the patent office in a like review public comment stage. So. Have you ever done that before? No, first oh. patent. So, so that's yeah. that's kind of interesting. Uh, I just read an article about Warren Buffett, and he's had four things that you know you should do to be successful. And the fourth one was mostly say no. <laughs> and I yeah. thought that that one landed with me because I I've said yes too many times and gotten into trouble. Yep. Yeah, especially when the little voice is going, I don't think we should. No, but I want to. Yeah. But it will be amazing. It will be amazing, and I'll feel good. And I'll feel good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I don't. I think there's a lot more exploration that needs to happen around this. Um, around? Around declarative. The getting away from invented declarative languages and our our tendency to reach for them. If we could make it as easy to reach for a general purpose language and get the same benefits, that's probably what, what needs to happen. But is it possible, I think, is the question. Well, it was, I mean, I feel like that was a lot of Guido's motivation behind Python is to make, I, I know many times over the years he's said, um, he's talked about programming for everybody. Yeah. So, um, I mean, although it, let's see. I, I, I was about to say, well, it doesn't really have any support for creating declarative languages or DSLs, but somebody's going to say, oh, no, there are all these libraries. People have solved it. You just haven't looked, which is true. I have. I'm sure, yeah. I yeah. haven't looked. But um, On the Python note, there is a, a part of Python that I've used for defining... It's kind of like workflows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so much work around declarative languages and workflows. But what what this one did was you write Python, and then the Python somehow gets converted into YAML because YAML is the actual like language of this workflow system. But no one wants to write the actual YAML. 
for for this workflow system and so so you can instead write python which somehow becomes that yaml hmm. um is it yeah, restricted but, limited python yeah because ultimately uh, it has to be convertible to the yaml sure. that that the workflow system so can run mm -hmm. yeah and so that that's i think part of the problem is that you're you're not really getting the advantages of the general purpose language could you call libraries from this python or no no, no because it's, it's just the basic python syntax yeah yeah oh, okay yeah. yeah so maybe you get some benefits on the tooling side like at least you can use your python tools to write the code which is nice mm -hmm. but but yeah because it ultimately has to compile down to the yaml that the workflow engine uses mm. whereas gosh why can't the workflow engine just just run python or something maybe that's mm -hmm. So. Yeah, well, and I know people have created build systems. I've imagined build systems that say, uh, yeah, in fact, w one of the um, PyCons uh, during the hack days, I worked for a while on a tool which was just to, um, you know, look at um, timestamps and see what's out of date. And there's apparently a lot more complexity to it than what you imagine when you think about that. And um, so the idea was that, well, you just add this on top of Python and everything, you know, you use this and everything else is just Python and now you have a build system. And that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I know other people have, have um, yeah. tried, tried to do that too. Yeah, it's, I think build systems is, is a really fascinating place to look at this problem mm -hmm. and what we've seen with with gradle was oh let's just use a general purpose programming language they started with groovy and then are moving to kotlin yep. um there's i don't think that gradle quite figured figured out the programming model the right programming model i think because they were a bit uh hamstrung by by the the legacy of the the groovy language and how the gradle stuff gradle build does stuff but but I certainly like in in Gradle being able to use a real programming language and have that escape hatch, and yet yeah. it looks declarative usually. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And they're actually using the tools that um, Kotlin put in to create internal declarative yeah. DSLs. I think that the the complexity of the German language is what caused Gradle to be the way it is. Because I think it's the same thing as, you know, somebody who can spew off Unix command lines. Their brains are wired differently. <laughs> and I think with German, it's, you know, it's got this complexity where you get used to dealing with that. And so I think that Gradle became as... Because Hans is just a brilliant German it's he does gradle is difficult for for the normal the human like me basically and we know hans so yeah hi hans hi hans um yeah i mean that's this is my hypothesis it could be totally wrong but i yeah i i, I feel like there's some truth yeah in it so with gradle in particular the thing that always throws me off is it's really hard to understand the life cycle of how how and when mutations get applied and uh, and when parts of the declarative stuff are actually kind of used or applied, and I think that that's one of the challenges with 
how we've done DSLs in general purpose languages is that the the life cycle gets hidden and then it becomes really hard to debug and well and there's also some built-in biases things like uh well like assuming that you're using java and that you're using the weird java hierarchy oh and the directory directory structures which always drives me crazy i mean those artifacts i yeah i just i don't want to it's so yeah yeah yeah. I mean, as long as you never look at them, it's fine. But as soon as you have to start, you're going down through all of these empty directories, which has a single subdirectory in it. And I get they were there. They were thinking that they were doing something else, but it's just it. It makes me nuts. There was some fascinating Twitter discussion about exactly this topic recently. Oh, and with, of course, people on both sides. And um I my tweet about it was that um, directory structure bike shedding is the best kind of bike shedding. <laughs> Just like more, give me more. Just we could just talk for hours about directory structure. Um, so we should, because not everybody understands the term bike shedding. So yes. the idea is that um, when you have you got a whole bunch of people and you're working on a problem. When a problem is difficult, nobody contributes. When a problem is obvious, for example, what color should we paint the bike shed? Everybody has an opinion. And a very adamant. Very, very strong opinion. It absolutely must be blue. It must be blue. No, no. Red is my favorite color, therefore. But think about the sky. The sky, yeah. The sky is blue. But then so the I'll, bike shed then should I be won't blue. be able to tell the difference between the bike shed and the sky, and I'll run into it. Or if it's red, I'll see it. If Chewbacca was a Wookiee, you must have quit. Do you remember I that one? Do not know what you're talking uh, about. Uh, I think it's a is that a Simpsons quote? But anyways, okay. it just is nonsense, nonsense uh-huh. logic, which mm-hmm. yeah. is most bike shedding is. Well, and yeah, and it comes down to, well, this is what I like it. So I'll try and make up a logical argument. Behind That's right. It, which mm, exactly. a lot of arguments are that way. Yeah. Not yeah. So the, the uh, who was it that coined the term bike shedding? It was um, oh. somebody we know, like I'm not no personally, but I but thought it was um, some thought, famous what? computer scientist really? person. From, I thought it was a Monty Python 50s. reference. No, oh, okay. so I think it, there is, I could be wrong about this, but I think some, some computer scientist from like the fifties coined it or something. Oh, but okay. Anyways, yep. uh, their example for the complexity one was if you spend years developing a plan for how to build a nuclear power plant, no one will have any comment. Like just cause the complexity of that is off the charts. Oh, so yeah. Whereas, yeah, you so get much more debate around what color should you paint the bike shed. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so uh, directory structure bike shedding, that's always fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, which is pointless because that's the way Java decided to do it. And so we're stuck with that. Yeah. But uh, You can change it. Uh, there, There is settings in Gradle and Maven, and SBT to change that directory structure. So if you're using Play Framework with SBT, they override the defaults to be slash app for your main source directory, which Mm -hmm. is like, I love it. And personal preference, I will debate you all day long on why slash app is better than source main Java, whatever. Um, 
uh, slash app and then slash test for your tests. It's in slash comp for your configuration. I think they stole that from Rails or something, but mm. Um, mm. but yeah, it's once you use it, you will understand why it's so great. <laughs> which which one? Either the one. Uh, the play framework way oh, of see. doing it. But what play does is it just overrides default SPT settings to do it. But actually, remember, uh, I was at an engineering meeting with TypeSafe now Lightbend. And we literally just spent an hour, like top engineers in in TypeSafe. We spent an hour talking about directory structures, and that mm -hmm. was because because there was half the room was you know source main Java, half the room was Play Framework slash App, and so we just spent an hour talking about directory structures. You know, and that maybe, was the point where I was like, "What is this? Is this is so useless?" For some things, maybe we should bring back you know trial by combat. <laughs> right a little uh uh what do they call that when you pull your guns um duel yeah a duel or or or, or swords so. yeah swords yeah swords. sword fight and then yeah. and settle then it with sword fights sword fights yeah yeah i think i because you know we've gotten too far away from that and then we have this consensus thing and i guess it's a really interesting kind of meta question of like how do you resolve these sorts of things so Clearly, the bike shed needs to be painted one color or another. How do you decide? You can use consensus. You can use meritocracy. You can use um, duels, um, combat. Uh, there's a there's a process called um, disagree and commit, and that's if, but that's usually used when it's a majority kind of thing, and then everybody else says, "Okay, I'm not gonna." Like, I don't like this idea, but I will go along with it because we need to move forward. Um, but that's not really the solution of getting there. And uh, yeah, boy, because I've been in experiences where we used consensus. And then when I studied, um, let's see, holacracy, because I took the holacracy training from the guy who, you know, created it and wrote the book. And he really made a strong case against consensus and then having because i lived in a co-housing community where we use consensus and we tried to um we were trying to reupholster the couches in the common <laughs> room total bike shedding right oh my gosh well it wasn't yeah i don't even know if it would categorize as that because we were but we were just trying to choose the fabric and it took a year right yeah to, i mean that seems like to like a total bike shedding thing where yeah. it really doesn't it's a total trivial decision, but everyone I'm sure had really, really strong, strong. Well, I think what we had is one or two really strong opinions that wouldn't, you know, go along with the majority. And, and it's like, and, and, and I went, I was at a nonviolent communication workshop and somebody there said, so consensus is like handing all of your power to the grumpiest person in the room. So all of this made me come away with this idea of, well, consensus is, uh, you know, it, it, it's so impractical. And then I was at another workshop and I said this, it was a nonviolent communication workshop. And I said, oh yeah, consensus is terrible and we should never be used. And the people next to me said, oh, using NVC speak, oh, that makes me sad because I've studied nonviolent, I mean, I've studied consensus and there are techniques that can help you, you know, come to consensus. And I, 
it, and the way they put it was was wonderful because it made me kind of step back from my thing and go rather than just doubling down and going no i've had these experiences and you're wrong I, instead i go oh huh now i wonder are there techniques that where consensus could work and and then there's the process where you look at team size and i think they looked at this with go when they were developing huh. go they said let's keep our core team less than i don't know a handful of people because then we can make decisions much more easily and it makes you wonder well maybe consensus is fine if you have five people huh. and then if it gets to be a larger number of people you need a different process yeah and i hadn't thought about it yeah. in those dimensions yeah. and it's kind of the same thing with concurrency and exceptions and stuff it's like yeah in the small something can work but that doesn't mean it works everywhere yeah and it's all these universalist you know, the, yes what yeah. did you call it non-universalist ideas or I something I hadn't, I hadn't heard that term before but that's I just a good one made it up oh well i like it i like it yeah. but there are ideas that are universal and then mm. there are are i guess are ideas that aren't so like consensus is an idea that cannot apply universally maybe well and then how many other things that we think are universal are not right and it's just like meritocracy is yeah you know as we're talking about bike shedding mm -hmm. like i there i think coming from the open source world I, I i think i'm moving away from this position but i used oh, to think like um that that Merit the open source is a full meritocracy or should just be a full on meritocracy. Um, cause I think it disadvantages a lot of people. Uh, but I, I thought, Oh, just meritocracy will solve it. And cause it's, it's the solution, right? Well, it's like looking, I mean, when you, when you look at, um, the reinventing organizations book and you realize that, Oh, each of these organizational structures, had value when they were created and some of them still seem to work rather than just going oh everything in the past is bad and terrible and this new thing is the answer right. and so yeah when you when you start looking at it that way and and like meritocracy versus whatever came before it meritocracy seems like oh this is a you know we'll base it on intelligence or you know smart thinking or whatever it is and the thing is there is also a dark side to yeah. meritocracy which is you know as most of these systems have a dark side yeah you know it's like well if we have a red organization it means you've got the single chieftain and if you need a decision made fast and your guy is good at making fast decisions, which you hope. Um, you got a you got a very fast, flexible system. But of course, it's all based on what that person wants. Yeah. And so, you know, compared to that, meritocracy is much more powerful because it's like, well, let's do things based on, you know, science and science thinking. Yeah. But what what about the people who don't fit into that yeah, kind of thing if exactly. that's your one-dimensional way of looking at the world you're not i mean and it isn't just oh well you're leaving them out it's you're not getting the value from those those that's people right. and their perspectives and their you know just because you're you yeah know, so think i think back to the bike shed which is interesting mm -hmm. is like for if, if we're talking about how do we 
how do we solve the bike shed problem? What color should we paint the bike shed? If we were to try a meritocracy, then maybe there is a single mom that lives next to the bike shed and has to look at it every day, but she's a single mom, and so she can't go out and paint the bike shed, whereas meritocracy would say, come paint the bike shed if you want to make the decision. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think there is meritocracy has has downsides. Democracy, be interesting to apply democracy to to the bike shed problem is like, how do you, who do you decide, who decides and how do you decide who is part of that democracy? Is it the people that have to look at the bike shed, the people that use the bike shed, the anyone, can anyone that has an opinion about the color of the bike shed, like be part of the democracy? There's a workshop that I'm taking or that I took, which talked about, um, I don't know, basically solving difficult problems like this inclusively. And the only thing that I've really taken away from it is you have to get it's it's not about like weighting the information or whatever, at least this initial discussion is that you need to have a way to get information from everybody, including the introverts and the people who are worried about, well, do I have any power in this? Um, you know, maybe you're under a representative, underrepresented, and you're used to going, oh, I see they're, you know, they're not, maybe they're not even aware of it, but they're doing this power thing again. Well, it's like that, um, that podcast you pointed me to, which I listened to the first one and it was a little hard. It was a little depressing to hear what was going oh, on. Oh, this is the nice white parents. The nice one. white parents. Yeah. And I, maybe, does it get better? I haven't, I've only listened to the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is, which is very good, but it, and it, and it feeds into this in, in the idea was that you need to, you need a way to get information from everybody. But the thing that I uh, related it to with, with that nice white parents thing is that as soon as you start going, oh, well, let's categorize these things. The people who feel underrepresented, immediately their radar goes up and goes, oh, you're putting things in categories, so, you know, I'm not, you know, somehow that's, I'm not going to be represented in that. So you got to put everything on one list. You can't start, you know, just that simple little thing can make a difference. Yeah. And it's so... that's a little bit of a contribution to that uh to that problem yep but uh but understanding what it does when you start dividing things into categories yeah and what it feels i mean for if you're the you know the privileged white male you know that just seems like logical thing to do but if you're the person who's on the not that person then it looks suspicious and probably from good for good reason like you know oh we're gonna have a french program it's just gonna be additive it's just gonna be good and then pretty soon it's taking over the whole yeah school yeah. so yeah there's also a representative democracy so you could for, to decide what color to paint the bike shed you could elect a leader that leader could listen to the constituents and try to figure out how to uh, make a decision um you proxy your uh your uh, power there's certainly downsides to, to that approach. yeah yeah because i i know what i'd like to do is see what that does is it gives me a focus and i can go to that person and i can give them money to get my way that's right which is the or way. you could buy a bunch of facebook ads to get a bunch of 
your constituents, your the people that elected you to say that the bike shed must be mm-hmm. blue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's some downsides to that approach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you could share the bike shed, paint half of it blue, half of it red. Well, now but... that sounds a little more interesting to me because <laughs> now the bike shed is looking more interesting to my eyes. <laughs> right. Or... So, but in the case of like your upholstery of the couches, Uh it's like, what if one was, was blue suede and one was polka dot, whatever, right? I could have shared them. I would have, I would have been fine with that if we could have made that decision. I mean, I, I just ordered some sinks and faucets for the co-working space. And Daniel, when I told him about it, my friend, Daniel, he goes, that was a really fast decision, which I assume the under, you know, the unspoken part was for you. <laughs> yeah. And I am kind of wondering, how was I able to make that that fast? There was huh. something it's huh. yeah. And some decisions don't really merit the amount of time and effort we put into them. Yeah. You know, because uh, like what you were mentioning earlier, uh, the this this uh, management idea that you can't manage what you can't measure and so they spend so much time and money focusing on measurements and there are some things that you can't measure that you still have to manage but once you get that idea that you know which is another problematic statement from the management world this is a really interesting book idea is take all the known like management and decision making <laughs> paradigms and try to see how they play out with the bike shed. So in the case of the measurement one, uh, somebody is deciding what is valuable to measure. And so maybe it's like they're, they've decided, OK, reflectivity is what matters for what color we paint the bike shed. And so they test all the paints, figure out which one is the least reflective, if that's what they want to optimize for. And so then they make the decision based on that. But then you have a constraint. You have a clear constraint to work with. Well, and you've decided what matters. Mm-hmm. So somewhere someone has decided what to measure and what what uh, goal is is the most important. Yeah. Yeah, and that certainly makes the problem a lot easier. It does. But, but if it's just open ended, yeah, it doesn't matter. Just we need to we need to cover paint the paint bike shed so that it doesn't decompose. <laughs> right. Well, again, there's it a doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what color it is. It just needs to be painted. It just needs to be painted, right? Yeah. And then and then it's like, but the thing is, if it doesn't. You know, if it doesn't matter, then the result is also relatively low impact. Yeah. You know, and so I guess that's the thing. It's, is it about the impact that it has? I think it's also about the simplicity of understanding the problem. Like as soon as you put that constraint on, now you've complicated the problem and somebody has to go out and, you know, look something up and do the research and now maybe that's how to avoid bike shedding is you put you put enough constraints on that huh. only somebody who's really interested in the problem will yeah will tackle it but then who's putting those constraints and how do you decide who's able to put those constraints on and yeah see whereas with a flat organization it would just be somebody want to paint the bike shed you get to choose the color but that's a meritocracy in a way right is it I don't think so. I think or, I mean, the, or duocracy, maybe. 
Uh, yeah, I think maybe I think it's a little closer overlap to that. duocracy and meritocracy. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like when we needed to, like when we were having the winter tech farm and we needed to solve the problem of um, uh, putting in uh, wireless in the in the hall, um, it's like somebody stepped forward and said, I'll do it. And I was like, great. I don't have to think about that. Yeah. And that's really all you want. Yeah. And if you get to the point where you can trust everybody who's working with you, yeah. then, um, it, and the thing is, mistakes will be made. And what we, when we have the, the, you know, the hierarchical organization, which is to prevent any mistakes and change, mistakes still get made and they're way more expensive than if you just go out and try and do it. Yeah. That is the one thing I liked about the holacracy that I really came away with was do if experiments. An, yes, an issue comes up, we, we bring it up during a meeting and then we come up with the first solution that no one has legitimate objectives to objections to. And we don't like say, well, we got to guarantee that this will work because we don't know if it's going to work. You know, that's the way it is with most things. It's like, does anyone have any reason? It's, it's like science that something is falsifiable. Does anybody have any way to falsify this suggestion? Okay. Yeah. If they do, we'll try something else. Um, but if they don't, we'll try that. And if it doesn't work, we'll come back to it. And the cycle time is much faster yeah. than if you try and say, well, we can't try this unless we can guarantee that it's right, which you can't. And now you've put in all this time and energy into the guaranteed right solution. And when it fails, you lose a lot more. Yeah. So, yeah. Huh? Yeah. I wonder if there's a connection with that and the bike shedding problem. Yeah. Can I you, mean, can you just, yeah. could you use the experimental process to decide sure. how, who wants to paint the bike shed, go paint the bike shed. Any problems with the bike shed? Okay. You can, you can paint it a different color. Could just be continuously repainted. And yeah. Dull. But at some point somebody's going to, you know, people are going to go, eh. I don't love it, but I don't want, if you want to repaint it, right. you can repaint it. It, it will settle. Yeah, to a color. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably the first thing that I would experiment with. Mm. Is it's hard to get into the mindset of of a flat organization because we've always been trained to, to well, who tells you what to do? And um, one of the greatest answers that I've heard from that is the mission. The mission of the organization tells you what to do. Huh. And you, and more importantly, you don't serve a boss, you serve the mission. And so that decouples you from this idea that there has to be somebody telling you what to do. Huh. It's like, well, go back to the mission. Yeah. You know, what are we trying to do? The mission is solving, how do we, how do we develop, how do we pay for open source development so that people don't have to have a job in order to support their open source project yeah that's the mission yeah. so serve that huh yeah start with what the mission is mm -hmm. then apply experiments mm -hmm. and do lots of experiments because yeah. we don't know the answer if we knew the answer we well in in that model it requires someone actually coming up with and performing the experiment and so if you care enough then you will mm -hmm. and ideally if you're a 
part of this organization, the first thing is 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 the mission, what you want to do. Yeah. Is that and if and if it is, then then you're a good fit. If that doesn't interest you, then you're not. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think about that and back to the directory structure mm-hmm. conversation because when I was in that engineering meeting and we had those two sides, what we didn't talk about was the mission. Mm-hmm. And the mission of Play Framework was to was developer productivity, make things easy. And, mm-hmm. and I would say that Play Framework's directory structure is in their mission. It's aligned with their mission. Whereas the people on the other side... I think that their mission was more around how do we make this uh, how do we make this similar to what other people have experienced or something along those lines is um, congruency with with the community or congruency with culture was much more of their mission and so source main Java was more congruent. And so, so they were coming at it from the side of congruency. But maybe what we should have talked about was our missions, how they were different, and if there was a way to bring those missions together, or if the separate missions really mean that there are separate goals of each project, and we just need to make sure that our projects are, are yeah. This is a really important idea because with like C plus plus. A huge part of the vision for that was we want to make a better C and so we want to make it really easy for people to come from C to C++ and Java fell into that and they ended up with you know issues from that they had dragged with them from C++ they didn't need new you know everything everything's created on the heap so they did not need a new statement whereas C++ did but they kind of blindly adopted to the new statement. And one of the cool things about Kotlin is that they said, all we need to do is work with the JVM. We need to, you know, play nice with Java as nice as possible, but we don't have to imitate their syntax. We're not trying to solve that problem of, of being like yeah. Java or C or C. Yeah. yeah. And and look at the cost. Yeah, there there was a big benefit, I think, for C to move people from C and allow them to immediately be productive and everything. But the cost has been borne ever since because it, it makes a lot of things about C++ more complicated. Yeah. So I wonder if every project, I wish uh, maybe what would be an interesting experiment is for the open source that I work on is to create a mission.md file in the repo mm. that states what my mission is. And then whenever there's a bike shedding type of debate that comes up, we can look at the mission and say, how does how do we look at this decision in light of the defined mission? That is that I mean that's basically how a flat organization is supposed to work, because you don't have bosses telling you what to do. Is you go back to that and you go, does this serve our mission? And um and if it doesn't, um well yeah th- that's yeah it that's informs your, your decision. It informs your decision and uh yeah. Or at least informs the type of experiment, the way that you should conduct an experiment, the type mm-hmm. of experiment and the outcomes that you're aiming the for. The directions with that, that you're going. Yeah. 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 It's a, but it's definitely a different way to think, uh, think about it. Notice. Well, I know we've mentioned it on this podcast before, but that's one reason that I think Python is so awesome is because the Zen of Python mm-hmm. is, seems like the foundational mission statement that, that 
people come back to and say, does this decision fit with, with that mission? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's really useful to have those guidelines the that Tim Peters came up with. Yeah. He's, he's so thoughtful and insightful. Yeah. So maybe we need to, I need to experiment with defining my missions on my open source and see if it's something that helps. And then if so, maybe it's something that other open source projects could adopt and something that we could learn from. We could help yeah. others do is define your mission for your project. Yeah. And then it will make the bike shedding conversations hopefully easier. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we did sort of come up with a mission for the podcast, which was to, you know, have conversations and record them, but in particular, not make it a high ceremony process. That's right. No frills. Yeah. No frills. And it says that right yeah. in the um, description. Yeah. So that, you know, it sets expectations. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it, it, is in some ways part of our mission such that if if somebody complains like oh you all should really take out the ums and the background noise and the whatever like no that's not aligned with our mission statement no well plus we know what that would do which would be it would make it harder and harder to do it and at some point we would stop so that's our mission statement came out of uh our past experience and what we wanted to avoid the, I guess mm -hmm. the outcome that we, that we wanted. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah Mission.md. That's going to be, mission.md. that's like going to that. be my new mission. Nice. To, I like it. Yeah. I think the reason, I mean, so many companies have had mission statements that everybody knows is just, that's not the mission. Your mission is maximize shareholder profits. Yeah, quarterly. <laughs> quarterly, yes. And and the fact that you say that it's this other thing, it just makes me not believe anything that you say. And it's, so it's really too bad. You know, the, and, and the mission statement has gotten a very bad reputation because of yes. that. It's like, oh, it's just a lie that we tell employees to make them feel better about maximizing shareholder profits right. quarterly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> we need to make it meaningful again. Yes. Okay. Make missions meaningful again. Yeah. Um, maybe, like, well, if we can bring this far enough, maybe we could have it as a, you know, like you always get the option when you're creating a new um, GitHub repo that you can have a readme.txt and you could say, would you like a, a mission.md? Like, mission.md. Exactly. Yeah. And then maybe it could have some, some, framework or or maybe there could be some like you know like the licenses you get to choose from licenses maybe you could have oh. some have some pre uh, kind of template. mission statements to choose from yeah yeah it would be really and then it'd be really interesting to i think it would be really helpful actually if i go to an open source project to be able to see what their mission is because it would probably help me understand where they're coming from mm -hmm. i think that's a lot of times there's conflict in open source because people don't really understand what the mission of a project is. So yeah, and a lot of the projects I I put up and I just go oh, I might as well make it open, but this is solving my own problem, and and I need you know it would be if somebody can see that then they're not going to expect that I'm going to spend much time making it a general purpose tool or whatever. It's like oh here's an example that maybe you can learn from or adapt to your own needs or whatever. And, well, that's one of the mission, potential mission statements. That's right.
Yeah. All right, we have a mission. Okay. Let's do Good. it. We've accomplished something this week, and next week we'll do something else. Yes, we will. <laughs>